Well, hello, Timberline family. You're done digging out from the snow, and here we are together, and I'm so grateful. And we are finishing up, getting close to the end of the series, Who Do We Think We Are?, which has to do with Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He's spoken to us in the previous five chapters. We're in chapter six this weekend, and he's spoken to us in the previous chapters about the big themes, our identity, our destiny, our calling, he uses images like a temple and family and citizens, gives us practice for a solid life, practice for a solid life, uh, how to have good households and just authentic day-to-day -day living. And now we come to the last chapter, very interesting chapter, one of the best known in the New Testament, where he essentially says now <clears throat> about the fight, like he's saying, so just to be clear, <laughs> What we have read and heard from the Ephesus letter the last seven weeks is captured in one word. And we'll come back to that now about the fight. That one word is we. All of the themes of Ephesians can certainly apply to you and me as individuals, identity, destiny, calling. But over and over, Paul speaks to the group, this gathering that he calls the church. So... In this passage, he has imagery as well. He's had temple before and new country and all of that. In this passage, the imagery is soldier, athlete. And he describes our challenge in life as a fight. Of course, the timing's perfect for us. I mean, this month. I, if you're a basketball enthusiast, you love this month. Spring is upon us and a fight is just around the corner. We call it March Madness. 68 Division I college basketball teams, both the men and the women in their uh, various teams, compete for the prize for first in the nation. There are four schools with the best records that get the advantage. Those are called one seeds. And there's a three-week battle down to the final four on April 15th. So basketball season tournaments are one long battle. And this year, NCAA men have four teams that are those number one seeds. They are Gonzaga from Washington State, Baylor from Texas, Michigan, and Illinois. You say, why are you talk, talking about this in Ephesians chapter six? Well, I have a confession. I'm a fan of Illinois, of the fighting Illini. Why? Well, I'm emotionally connected to that place. Our story, Ruth's and mine, was shaped by that place. We lived there in Urbana, Illinois from 1966 to 1978, from our mid-20s to our mid-30s. And there was one moment early on that was a game changer. It began at the arena where the fighting Illini play basketball. Oh, not on the court, in the parking lot. Here's the University of Illinois Assembly Hall. Looks like a giant spacecraft or something settled down. And Ruth and I had arrived in Urbana in November of 66. We were 24 years old, three years married, an eight-month-old daughter, and a congregation of 15 mostly college students. And I got a call in the late spring of 67. So this is eight months late, eight or nine, saying from a church leader, saying a wonderful leader and his family are coming to Urbana. His name is Paul McGarvey, and he's a coach. And that parking lot is where I met Paul for the first time. 
that meeting would begin a friendship of 50 plus years. He became my mentor, my teacher, colleague, friend, and that parking lot moment introduced me to a fellow soldier in the battle. What I found in Paul as a coach, and here's a guy who wasn't really tall, he was five, six, or seven, but he had this huge heart, huge understanding of the kingdom of God, and he showed me training, he showed me discipline, persistence, mission, loyalty, love, tenacity, all kinds of things. He wasn't perfect, but he had those things in such intensity that it really affected me. So I'll tell you more as we go along. Back to the original Paul, speaking to the Ephesians. Paul in chapter six frames a big view for a group called the church. And there's only one, by the way. It's not defined by a name per se, but there's only one in Fort Collins. There are all kinds of expressions that have names, but the church of Jesus Christ is this large thing. It's not stiff. It's not stuffy. It's more of a tight thing. It's more of a dynamic, dynamic movement where people are committed to each other. So Paul is speaking to people, believers in Western Turkey who are up to their necks in pagan culture. It's like a soup or a stew. They've got oppressive political structures. They got cultic practices, huge temple, as you've heard the last seven weeks up on top of the hill. And anyway, Paul has been telling them in these first five chapters who they were. His dream is that they would understand that they are a powerful, redemptive community. They're chosen, they're redeemed, they're knit together, they're a new humanity. Well, he actually captures it this way, midway through Ephesians. I just want to reach back for how he says it. Ephesians 3, 20, 21 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So in chapter six, in his wrap up, he isn't encouraging that church or those people to run or retreat. Quite the opposite. Paul is calling out a warrior people. And this is how it begins. Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. My first thought is you, that we need to know, you need to know, and I need to know where our strength lies. Know where your strength lies. Literally, it says, clothe yourself with strength. Put strength on like a garment and, and continually do this. The thing that's clear about that first sentence is this is not self-help. This is not pull yourself up by your bootstraps or suck it up or stiff upper lip. This is not, if you could just tweak this area, this is for us to recognize that we are in a battle and we need a power beyond ourselves to win this battle. Paul, when he came to Champaign-Urbana, these are twin cities, was a backfield football coach in high school. And he had this kind of um, confidence it, it was sort of a, a, simple, a simple security, if I can put it that way, from the Lord. So whether he made a move from down near St. Louis to where we were, four hours away, or whether it was working with a new head coach, or whether it was a chance to help plant a university congregation or meet new students that he served so well, or build new friendships, 
he, he had this sense that just sort of radiated from him that his life was the Lord's idea. One of his favorite Psalms was Psalm 121, help comes or my help comes from the Lord. So going to the next verse, Ephesians 6:11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. My second thought is understand what the battle is. We got lots of battles going in in culture today and around the world. What's this battle? And again, the language is, is, is used, put on, clothe yourself. It's, it's different verb, but it's clothe yourself with the full armor. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, full armor back in the day, and of course, he's sitting in a Roman prison cell looking at a prison guard with armor on, I guess. And it means complete. There are a number of pieces to it. He says, be sure to have all the pieces. Literally, it means armor up and don't lack in a single part. In other words, don't end up at a gunfight carrying a knife, you know, that sort of thing. That's one of those old Western lines, okay? And it has to do with attention to detail. McGarv, as we called him, was always up for talking sports. He had played high school football, uh, played a little college baseball, but he coached baseball, basketball, and football. And a lot of times we talk about feet that um, in basketball and in football, footwork, how you used your feet or moved your feet was critical. In baseball, what he tended to talk about was the hook slide, that over and over again, you're sliding into second base or into third or into home plate. This particular way of sliding, they would practice it over and over and over again so it would become rote with them. Attention to detail, put on the whole armor of God, every piece. Goes on to talk about the struggle, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not against just regular mortals, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now this is pretty heady language for us here in Western culture, but Paul and his peers saw the heavenly realms at least in two levels that God and the good forces were highest, and below that, surrounding earth, were Satan and fallen ones below. And this, this idea comes out, it came out earlier in Ephesians, and it's coming out against, again now. And it isn't just that these are little spirits floating around, but the, but the attitudes of those powers in, in, are invested in sometimes institutionals, institutions or agencies or movements in ways that destroy people. So it says, stand against the devil's strategies, schemes. And again, um, McGarvin and I would love going to football games. And when we got to the University of Illinois to do that church plant, they just had a scandal. And so they had lost their basketball coach and their football coach. And in our 11 years, they never really recovered. So U of I football was terrible. The good part of that was they had lots of seats. And so Paul and I would go, but he wouldn't take me to the 50 yard line. I mean, there were seats where he would take me was to the end zone. And I'd say, Paul, why are we sitting in the end zone so far from the action? And he said, when you sit here, you can see the strategies of the opposing team. You can see how the players uh, structure the plays and how plays open up and the tendencies of the quarterbacks and the wide receivers. Today, we call that 
watching film. Back in the day, it was McGarvin Foth sitting in the end zone. Anyway, Paul goes on, and he's talking about the, the enemies of our souls, the enemy of our souls, either individually and collectively. We need to understand this about the enemy, that he's subtle from the Garden of Eden on. He's subtle, beautiful, and enticing. Scripture doesn't call him accuser, tempter, and destroyer for nothing. He creates an atmosphere of mistrust, mistreatment, margins, pushing people to the margins, misdeeds. We are the glorious church, according to Paul. And in that role, in that function, we need to stand against those kinds of things. Mistreatment, misjudgments, that whole thing. Okay? Verse 12 goes on, that very same verse. Paul shifts metaphors from soldier or warrior to wrestler. It's very interesting. We, we wrestle not against these things. And Greek wrestling isn't like high school or college wrestling. Greek wrestling contest was brutal. The loser doesn't just go home the loser. The loser has his eyes gouged out. I'm sorry, but that's true. This is not checkers or chess or football or rugby or track and field. This is life and death. And Paul is trying to get that across. So his view of unseen forces behind the scenes are not like Harry Potter characters or Marvel characters. His is much more, I think, like C.S. Lewis captures it in Screwtape Letters. Fallen angels with mischief in mind, if you will. Their mission is very straightforward. If we can get humans to fight each other, we win. If we can get humans to fight each other, we win. Over anything and everything. If it can fracture culture, if it can put people in darkness instead of in light, we win. So Jesus comes and says, I will create a community, a family that loves each other, in a world of turmoil. I will create a place of light in the darkness that chases the darkness away. So I'd encourage you, friends, don't squabble over things that'll pass. Don't do that. Look for the good. Bless each other. Stand. Don't duck. Don't run. But stand. Goes on in verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. And I'm saying, Paul, Paul. Uh, you just said that twice in the first few sentences in my friend, our friend, Pastor Mac McKenzie. Matthew said, Paul is, is nothing if not redundant or repetitive. So here he comes again. Different verbs, actually, in the language, but therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Again, First thought was know where your strength lies. Second is understand what the battle is. It's the big battle, not these little skirmishes down here. Third thought is be equipped for the fight. Literally, that phrase put on the full armor in this passage says take up. It's a, it's a military order. It's curt. It's snap to it, soldier. And it's a point in time, the tense of the verb, and I know you may not care about that so much, but it's interesting in the original in that the, it, it's once for all. Do this once. Put this armor on for your whole life. Never relax. Never take it off and say we're good because it has to do with discipline. 
And armies fall apart for lack of discipline. And he says, do that to stand when the day of evil comes. Scholars don't know what the day of evil means exactly, but some of us can look back and say, boy, that was an evil day. That was a bad deal that day. It's in those days that we need that strength to stand. He also repeats this language over and over. Stand, stand firm, stand. And here it is again in verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Truth is the centerpiece, the belt, the buckler, okay? It holds it all together. In a day of, well, that's your truth, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the truth? I confess to you, I believe this truth, okay? And my friend Gordon Fee says it this way, things are not right because they're in the Bible. Because they are right, they're in the Bible. So when I look at how we respond to God and how we respond to each other, I have found that in my years to be absolutely on point, on the mark, and true. So what's the lens through which I see the world? What kind of world says there's no objective truth? Well, our world says that a lot, but we're so inconsistent. We know that two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen is water. Every time, that's true. Gravity works like this. Every time. A regular basket in regulation is two points every time. This is not Jack Nicholson versus Tom Cruise in the military courtroom in that movie, A Few Good Men, shouting, you can't handle the truth. This is the God of the universe shouting across the galaxies, you are designed for truth. And if you follow my teaching, it says in John, you, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Full armor, armor up. Truth is the belt holding it all together. Because you are designed to be a holy people, a redemptive community, fighting against unseen forces who haven't discovered that they lost 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem on a hill called Golgotha when Jesus Christ paid the price so that he could break that bondage. Next comes breastplate of righteousness, moral integrity, if you will, a right standing with God and with each other. I'm 26 years old, somebody comes to see me, and this person had some emotional instability, I confess, but the person made something up about me, fabricated it, and told me. And I'm 26, just getting started in what we would call vocational ministry, and my life is passing before my eyes. That person left. And, and I called Paul, he's at school. He's doing physical ed classes at the high school. And, and I said, Paul, I gotta see you. He said, Pastor, I'm in between classes or I'm in class, but come at this time. So I, I got in my car and went over there and we're standing in the hall with hundreds of students coming by. And I told him what had happened. And I said, this person could just say that to anybody. And this is what Paul said. Paul said, you can't stop that. Anybody can say anything they want about you, and you can't stop it. Today, we'd say they put it on social media, right? He said, all you can do, Pastor, is to live a life of such integrity 
that if they heard it, no one would believe it. The breastplate of righteousness. Then he goes on to cover the feet. Feet fitted with readiness. They wore, those Roman soldiers wore heavy leather sandals that strapped around the instep and around the ankle. And underneath, there were iron studs embedded in the bottom for firm footing. Because if you're going to fight, you want to be able to stand and have firm footing, not go anywhere. If, if those person were, persons were in the Old West, we have that phrase, there's no backup in him. Okay? And with those feet fitted, they're ready to respond with the message of peace with God. That's a good place to stand on that message, that idea. I could call Paul McGarvey any time of night or day, and he was always there. I don't know how many times I called him in the middle of the night and said, Paul, there's somebody in the hospital in the ICU, and I'm on my over. Would you like to come? He would always come. He could have been in two-a-day football drills until late in the evening, and he would get up and he'd meet me. We were partners in that. Goes on and says in verse 16, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. They would, they would take arrows and dip them in pitch, set them on fire and fire those in battle. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So my trusting of God is my shield Salvation, that experience that is both historic and ongoing. Paul says, you have been saved. You are being saved. You shall be saved. That's my helmet, if you will. That's, that's the thing that, that guarantees safety in a lot of ways. And the word of God is the sword, is that, that weapon that brings life. And when you've experienced that, what we call the saving knowledge of Jesus, when my life is, is um, made new, when my death part goes away and I've been given new life. We want others to have that. I have a friend now in his 40s, but when he was eight years old, he lived in Naperville, Illinois, and, and Paul, after he left coaching, had gone on and was an was a, uh, associate pastor at that congregation where my friend Joel was. And Joel is now executive pastor at National Community Church in Washington, D.C. He said, I was eight years old. It was Sunday night. And there was sort of a prophetic prayer where someone said, you lay in bed at night, you lie in bed at night, and you say, I'll, I'll commit tomorrow to Jesus. And night after night, you do that. But tonight is your night. And he said, I'm eight years old. And I get up and I walk down to the front to make a commitment. And I'm by myself. And all of a sudden, I felt a presence beside me and I looked and an arm went around my waist and it was Paul McGarvey. <laughs> here's, here's Joel. He's 6'2", six, 6'3", six, something like that. Paul's 5'6". And he said, in that moment, I didn't feel alone. And, and then Paul took me to the back of the sanctuary and, and showed me, talked to me about faith and walked me across, as he put it, as Joel put it, that scary line called faith. Know where your strength lies. Understand what the battle is. Be equipped for the fight. My fourth thought is this. Stay connected to the power. Ephesians 6.18 says it like this. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert 
Always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. If you're going to be a soldier, you need to be aware and alert. And prayer, both in general and in particular, is the thing that keeps the church alive, the talking to God part. That's the power chain, if you will. McGarvey, he would pray at the drop of a hat, anywhere, anytime. It was natural, authentic. He wasn't scary. I think he learned it as a boy in a church that he grew up in that was full of glory, if I can not be romantic or cheesy, but it, there was power there. And he grew in that as a teen and as a young man, as a husband and a dad and a grandpa. I just thought of this the other day. I, th I think Paul was um, bilingual. He spoke Midwestern English and prayer. <laughs> he, it was great to be in the same space where Paul was praying. So after the challenge and this call to battle, the apostle puts his arms around the friends in Ephesus in the last verse of Ephesians 6 and says, so peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You say to me, why the big story about Paul McGarvey? Why are you just sort of hammering on that? Well, Friday, March 11th, I was in Hillsborough, Texas, small community about 80 miles southwest of Dallas-Fort Worth. I was there for the memorial service for Paul McGarvey, born 1927, died March 8th. 2021. This is Paul. Paul passed away at 94 years of age. When I met him in the summer of 67, he was 40. I was 25. That 15 year kind of span is really a cool distance for mentoring purposes, I think. Uh, we had one daughter and one on the way, just little people. And he, they, he and Eileen had two teenage boys. So Paul and I have been friends for 54 years. He was born in Alton, Illinois, across from St. Louis. I already told you about him growing up in a tight family, in a church family, experiencing, if you will, the glory in the church as a child and a teenager. Later, uh, he married Eileen. They had two boys, Stan and Steve. And Paul was a coach for almost 20 years. Already mentioned basketball, football, baseball. Then he led a national men's work for 10 years, then became an associate pastor for the next several decades until his retirement. Paul was my sidekick, my mentor, my uncle, and together we'd do things into the wee hours. We would paint walls. We would do the things that needed to be done. Uh, Paul understood that men, and this is not as true, I think, for women as it is for men, that men tend to need to do stuff side by side before they do well face to face. So we would have great discussions on strategy, on scripture, on sports, on men and women, on education, on kids. In the spring of 1968, just nine months actually, after we had met, he was 41 and we took our first missions trip. My father-in-law had taken me when I was his associate in California, we'd go to a little place in Mexico called Guaymas in Sonora State. Because this, this church is for all generations, you pass it on. So three of us took a trip in an Opal Cadet station wagon. Those of you who are older remember that. Those of you who are younger, it's like a small Subaru. And so it was Paul McGarvey, Jerry Zeter, another high school teacher, and I. 
We only had a week. So we drove from Urbana, Illinois to Guaymas, Mexico, straight through almost 2,000 miles. And we took turns driving, stayed three days, did everything they did, turned around and drove straight back. And Paul was hooked on missions trips. In the rest of his life, he led dozens of mission trips all over the world. You want to know when he took his last one? Three years ago, when he was 91. He took young people and old alike on missions trip from the age of 41 to 91. No wonder he's a hero of mine. And he went to share the glory of Jesus because it was in his heart from his youth. I close with this. He was 18 years old in the fall of 1945. He's in the Army Air Corps. It was, the war had just finished in the South Pacific and he was assigned to the Philippines. And this story probably captures the heart of McGarve uh, more than any other story I know. His role was to guard some Japanese prisoners at a lumber yard, a, a carpentry workshop area, several uh, hours out of Manila, uh, Philippines, up in the mountains. And as he guarded them, he, he sort of struck up relationships. Of course, the, the English was a struggle. Japanese, for him, was non-existent. And, and he gave them some things and, and sort of helped them along. And I think they felt he was a friend of theirs. They met my friend Paul, who I think, like the Apostle Paul, might have designated himself as the prisoner of Christ Jesus. So the prisoner of Christ Jesus was guarding the prisoners of the U.S. Army. And um, I think they were drawn to the glory. I don't think I'm overstating it. The thing that happened was this. One day, some weeks after they had sort of become friends, they were to take a piece of equipment in a large crate in the back of a huge truck down to Manila to the harbor. And Paul was assigned to go with them and guard these several Japanese prisoners. And as they came down the mountainside, the young guy driving got a little fast on a curve and that crate started to slide and tip. It was a part of a crane, I think. And as that started to, to tip on him, Paul said, the only thing I knew to do to get out of the way was to make a hook slide. And it was just instinctive. And he said, I made a hook slide and it, it didn't catch my upper body, but it crushed my lower leg. He said, my prisoners could have grabbed my rifle and shot me. They didn't. They could have jumped down and run into the jungle. They didn't. What they did was to pull that crate, just muscle it off of me, pull me out of the back of the truck with my crushed leg and laid me down on the side of the road and just stayed with me for several hours until the ambulance got there from Manila. He said it was so painful I would come in and out of consciousness. And when I woke up, it was so excruciating. I just remember saying, talking to Jesus, the connection with the power, and saying, Jesus, this is nothing compared to what you suffered on Golgotha on the cross for my sins. This is nothing. And then I'd go back into unconsciousness. I don't know how many times he said I came in and out of consciousness. They finally got me to the hospital and they set my leg and later they would have to send him to the United States to repair the leg. But a few days after that, commanding officer from that from that site up in the mountains, brought these Japanese prisoners, Paul said, into my room and they had a translator. And he said, we came down to see how you were, but the main reason we came down was that these fellows said that when you were beside the road, you kept waking up and saying something. And they, of course, didn't understand it. 
but this translator here will, will help them understand. Can you tell him what you said when you woke up and said, and Paul said, I got the chance to tell the, these guys, these prisoners, I got a chance to tell them that Jesus had changed my life and he had sacrificed himself for me. So we didn't have to be bound up and restricted and lost. And I got to do it through a U.S. Army translator. And I, and I add, and at the taxpayer's dollar for the United States of America. <laughs> so as we um, said goodbye to Paul on March the 12th, on that Friday, I thought of this passage in 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. Paul saying this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So, he was a soldier athlete, armored up, truth at the core. Know where your strength lies. Understand what the battle is. Be equipped for the fight and stay connected to the power. Glorious church, who do we think we are? We're that. We're the glorious church. I have two words for you. Armor up. And this blessing as we close from Paul's own words in Ephesians 3. Now to him who was able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we get to be that church. Not wimps, not running, not fearing, but standing firm with the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, truth holding it all together, and our feet that are fitted with the gospel of peace. Help us to be the kind of people that when we individually or corporately walk into a space or into a room, that a different presence comes in. Let that be yours. Let people sense that way before they understand it. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.